Nicola Ngarewa, aka The Disruptor, episode 16 for the Best Side podcast. We talk about free range learning as opposed to uh, cage learning. You can liken it to chickens. Uh, stay tuned to find out what exactly we mean there. The future of education and how that looks and some other cool things around connection, the relationship between young and old, uh, old and new, uh, also, I guess, foreign and domestic. All sorts of these relationships uh, show themselves throughout our conversation. And it's pretty cool, you know, but we think of the future, you think of the future education and where things are going and where things, uh, where jobs are heading. Some principal kind of core values, though, that we had once upon a time when it came to learning and that it wasn't people that were trained up at teacher schools to go and learn to be teachers. It was more people from the community who are experts in their field uh, that came in to teach youth on also how to do those skills. So, you know, for example, someone might have been a great gardener in the community. They would come in and teach the students about gardens. And if any other students wanted to specialize in gardens, then they would have some advanced lessons on those. So we talk about how schooling needs to get more involved or more signed into the community and learn more about those things. That, obviously, her personal journey, her own papa comes out to play, the relationship between her siblings, all these cool, crazy stories. But obviously, education with her being a principal uh, is something that is pretty predominant throughout this corridor. So stay tuned. Episode 16, Best Side Podcast, Nikola Ngairua, The Disruptor. So I'll start with the question I ask everyone first up. Where are you from originally and where were you born and stuff like yep, that? Yep, so born and bred in Taranaki and Pātia. Mm-hmm. Yep, and so I was really fortunate to come from a really large extended uh, Māori whānau. Mm-hmm. So my dad affiliates to Ngāti Durunui Ngārauru. Yep. Uh, and my mum's of Irish descent, so yeah. Well, I never knew that. Always lots of fun, you know, mafia Māori on one side and Irish IRA on the next side. I always say, like, because I've got, a, in my time travelling, I've got a lot of Irish friends around the world. Yeah. And I always say, we get on so well because we like a beer, we don't like the English. <laughs> so I've always, said to, my, way, always yeah. said to my Irish friends, because it is like Kiwis and Irish are naturally drawn to each other. Yeah. So is your mum that's Irish? Yes, well, she, her, her um, parents were, and mm-hmm. so she's New Zealand born and stuff. Yep. But, so it's really interesting. So my koko, um and he had, you know, his kids, he, he had, so it's a long story, but he actually ended up adopting his nephew's child um, at five years of age. Who's this, sorry, your granddad? My couple, oh, yeah. my, my father's father. Yeah. Um, and he, uh, his his nephew passed away. So he adopted his um, niece, who was five, you know, his nephew's child, who mm-hmm. was five years old, and then ended up actually marrying her mother. Um, oh. And so he didn't oh, have his, yeah, his own children, which is a very Māori way, I think, you know, when... Someone was widowed, he wasn't a benefit or anything, and so Farno kind of so in his late forties, you know, he got married and then had my father, who was his first um, you know, uh, birth child, you know, okay. birth child. And so, you know, he was a real big part of influence in our life, it was huge. He was a widowed man, but a huge part of influence, and so he had impacted probably on every single one of our child's upbringing, but on the other side 
was my mother's side that was um, you know, very Irish, and at that time, my mum and dad got married. You know, uh, bicultural marriage wasn't really very mm, common from both sides. Yeah, yeah, oh, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And so, because um, <laughs> it's a big assumption, eh, is that like a lot of people think that I know anyway. In my Maori circles, they think that it's it was only. Um, I guess Pākehā who didn't like Pākehā marrying Māori, but well, there were also a lot of Māori who didn't like Māori marrying outside of Māori as well, eh? Yeah, I think, were, I mean, I think to be fair, my Māori side, like mum lived on the marae from them from the age of 16 years old when she had, when she married dad, you know, they were very young, um, and I think they were very loving and caring to her, and she would probably really strongly affiliate two things Māori because of, you know, that afi and manaki and that Aroha that she received. But, you know, my, and my grandmother was an amazing woman, but they were the ob- absolute opposite extreme. You know, like we'd go to Kukua's house, you'd have kaivu, you were spoiled, you ruled the roost, <laughs> and then you'd go to grandmother and grandfather's house, and that kind of says that all their names were grandmother, grandfather. Very you know, authoritative. Was, and... it, absolutely. And, you know, you'd sit at a big table with grandmother down one end and grandfather down the other end. And they were Irish, but very English in the way that they acted and sort of carried on and so it was sort of like one extreme to the next and yeah yep. yeah we were kind of like these feral marae kids <laughs> that suddenly end up at my grandparents house and have to behave do you know yeah. how your grandparents ended up here no, no? Oh, I, I should remember things like that but i'm not very good at it might come might come to you a little bit later yeah, on, yeah. Maybe. my siblings have got really good knowledge like that i don't so anyway so we're brought up in this really amazing um Bicultural, really enriching bicultural house, a really large extended Māori whānau. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we always say that the one thing that we're absolutely given, all of us, all of us Mokopono, really large whānau, uh, was unconditional love. And, you know, we were really, you know, we weren't rich materialistically, but in terms of, you know, love and being looked after, it was just, you know, phenomenal. Being yeah. a real idyllic childhood upbringing. Mm. So, um, back to your siblings then. You've mentioned your siblings a couple of times. Where yeah. do you sit? How many of you are yep. there? So there's four of us and I'm the baby. Oh, wow. Well. Yeah, yeah. Spoiled yep. baby? Uh, they would <laughs> Depends say, who you ask. <laughs> they would probably say, you know, that the, or the youngest one, she didn't get the hand-me-downs and all those sorts of things, but... I personally prefer to say that I was the best behaved child. Oh, yeah, there we go. I reaped all the benefits of that. What do you remember, I guess, the most about being the youngest one out of your sibling? There must be some stuff. So I'm I'm in a bit of a unique situation. So between me and my only full-blooded brother, I am the youngest because there's only him and I. But then we have half-brothers and step-brothers and stuff that extend and I kind of lean more towards the middle when we involve those guys so I know I have different experiences between being the youngest and being in the middle but yeah, is there any kind of thing that strikes the mind like were they quite protective of you or did they throw you under the bus a lot as a kid or um, or did you throw them under did you tattle on them a lot I as a youngest one probably, one of them would probably think I'd tattle or they'd probably <laughs> or think I was a bit of a pain in the bum but to be honest you know they were pretty amazing to me like I would have been a you know I was eight years younger than my sister so I would have been a real you know, that big age Shadow. Person, yeah, and a pain in the butt. Always wanted to tag along. Yeah, but they were always really, really, really good to me. You know, they um, would always let me tag along and they'd let me get into things and they'd ground me, but, you know, with love. And, you know, though I was pretty looked after, to be really honest. Yeah, even and even now, even now in my adulthood, they're still, you know, my big part of my number one team. Mm. And your, are your parents all still with us at the moment? Yep, yep. So mum and dad, um, and most of my siblings actually, uh, all of them apart from one, all still living around Pātehu. And even my nieces and nephews have all maybe gone off to university, gone overseas, um, and they've all moved back home. So when when the freezing works closed in the 80s at Pātehu, mm. lots of our extended family and lots of our friends all moved out of town, all had to go away for employment. Yep. 
Um, but my family really strongly believed in Ahikao keeping home fires burning, so they never moved. My father has never, he's 77. Um, he lived out of Pātia, I think it was six months when he was in the army, and his um, family house burnt down, he came home and never ever left again. Far out. So yeah, and mum also has lived in Pātia, so even though she was born um, in Pairua, has lived in Pātia since I was 16, never ever, never moved out of there, and never will, you know. Yeah. So, and that's because they really staunchly, staunchly believe in Ahika. So after the closure of the works, um, Dad, we trained as a, he's a third generation freezing worker, we trained as a secondary teacher and my mother eventually became the principal of the school where she started off as the cleaner. Um, oh wow! Yeah, man. Yeah. She so went from being the cleaner to being the principal. Yeah, principal. Yeah. How does? Yeah. Did, what, can, what can you tell us about that? That's a pretty incredible. I was pretty. I mean, they're both pretty incredible people, and that's kind of, I guess, the commitment both to Ahika and to Farno. You know, they did what they did to uh, give us the best opportunities and stuff in life. So yeah, they're pretty amazing, amazing people, amazing parents. And yeah. I was very lucky. I got the best of the best there. Um, yeah, and I, I was pretty young. I, I remember um, going to school with you, and you know, oh, this is back in the old days where they had these great big polishing machines that they did all the liner and emptying the I bins. I remember the ones, yeah. yeah. <laughs> emptying the bins and things like that. And then I remember being in the classroom, you know, tidying up her books and stuff like that. So, and she just, to be honest, all her life, she's just absolutely loved, loved kids. So it was probably a really natural, a natural process. And she always used to tell me, actually, because you know, back in those days, classes were streamed. And so you what does that of, mean? Uh, so you kind of you were either put into one area where you were going to go off and you know in your livelihood was going to be um, you know some really hard kind of uh, factory work and that's where you're kind of pipelined okay. and then or maybe some kind of academic pathway. And Mum always used to say that she was very clever, but she came from a very complex. You know, her mother, my grandmother, um, divorced when she was quite young, which was really unheard of. She had five daughters and you know, no sons which was also really unheard of especially being a Catholic family yeah um and so you know mum probably she was probably what's the word stereotyped and so she was always a very clever woman but she was pathwayed off into this avenue that never really sat with her right yeah and so I think it wasn't until she you know, kind of found herself later in life and kids were a little bit older that she thought you know what I'm going to be what I was always meant to be and the chances that I perhaps wasn't given when I was younger, I'm going to make it happen for me now. Mm. It's pretty crazy that, like, as you talk about your mum and, and bring these things, or even both your parents, really, and talk about these things, it helps me understand you and your sister way more. Because, <laughs> yeah. like, as much as you may not realise it as you speak about it, but there's so many of those themes that I see that are echoed from what I know of you guys. Yeah. Um, it's pretty crazy, and I'll definitely look forward to chatting more about those. I'll tell you what I mean in a moment yeah, once yeah. we kind of get past talking about your upbringing and stuff like that. So would you say that you were a Pargill growing up? Um, we definitely with Koko and, you know, and my dad, you know, we would go out to the marae and stuff all the time. But, you know, when I was a young one, unless we were kind of playing around, I found it quite boring. So I'd have to, <laughs> and I think it was kind of like mum would get us around the house and so we'd have to go, you know, go there with dad. And it was kind of, it was very different back in those days because you would have to sit in the whanau and you would have to listen to long... Oh, Long, long quarter, and I didn't have the patience for it. Yep. So, yeah, I wasn't, um, yeah, I probably wasn't, I would have much preferred that I was allowed to stay at home with mum and do different things, but we were kind of, that was mum's peace and quiet, we were shipped off there with Coco and with <laughs> my father. And I, actually, I actually have two brothers too who don't get anywhere near enough mention because they're pretty amazing, um, pretty amazing men, and one of them 
is very much like my cooker and his historical knowledge is just he's, he's almost got what do you call it like those photographic memories mm. he just re- recall and recite everything and this I'm is sh- one of your brothers mm, yeah and I'm sure that comes from his experience from being at the marae you know okay. like hearing things all the time and being able to pick it up and ingrained you as me I was just you know no nah, I just wanted to play or go and have fun or you know um hang out with my mother <laughs> it's so funny because like listening to you talk about you when you were younger it sounds like you would have been the most horrible student and then here you are the principal now of of a school <laughs> yeah I, I to be honest I was I wasn't probably uh, I was I definitely opinionated and I definitely had really strong opinions because I was you know very strong views about things because mm-hmm. we were brought up to be like that um but I wasn't I wasn't really naughty. Mm. I definitely had lots of whanau around me who really struggled in the education system. And I remember, especially as I was getting older, sort of looking around, and they were, like, massively intelligent, intelligent people, and looking around, and I thought, what the heck's... Where are they? What's happened literally overnight, you know? What's happened to these amazing people who would kick my butt academically and in so many other areas um, in life? And definitely... Yeah, that was, uh, you know, so I had lots of experiences like that growing up. And my partner, of course, you know, he was uh, kicked out of school when he was 13. You know, so he would be every um, every principal's nightmare, and I'm sure he was. But he gives me, as, as, do, my, as do other members of my family, because a lot of my father have also served, especially the men in my family, have served um, time in prison. And so it's given me lots of insight into how... Things should be so different for everybody, you know, not just for kids like me who was probably a little bit quieter, opinionated, but I pretty much got on with it. Yep. But, you know, lots of other members of my whanau who life didn't work like that for them and they did uh, look and act differently and, you know, they were massively judged and disadvantaged because of different ways that they presented, you know. So it sounds like you've had a lot of, like, I guess every person you know you've talked about whānau and stuff who have spent some time away um your partner who wasn't um well who left school at a pretty young age I think he um, got kicked out yeah 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 <laughs> so, but I got kicked out of school too when I was younger so I, I can relate to well, that so many so many you know did and, and do because it's a sort of it can be if it's not done well a one size fits all which just doesn't isn't real life you know isn't the way it has to be just because it's been like that yeah mm. so what are some of these examples like can you share with us without obviously naming people because it's it's partly their story too but can you share with us some of the examples that you've learned from because it sounds like people's stories have really had an impact with you you know you've talked about Fano who have spent time away and there's essences of all these stories that are kind of stuck with you in different parts so what are some of the ones that I guess, really knocked you in certain ways? Because we all meet people in life mm. who tell us a story and it really has a profound impact to us and it can dictate to how we um, spend our time and, and change our course of thought. You know, like I have assumptions broken down all the time whenever I do these podcast episodes, I sit with someone and I even like we've known each other a long time, but we haven't have really had a sit down, mm. get to know each other session and I'm learning all sorts about you and it's exciting and I know that it's going to, impact me from this point onwards can you talk about any of those sort of people that have that some of the stories that have come up with? yeah probably I mean there's probably you know obviously being and I'm really proudly born and bred and and partying in a small town sort of situation. it's one thing that's always resonated with you and your sister you guys love where you come from because yeah, awesome. it was it is such a big part of you know of who we are and I you know, for all of my um, opportunities in life, you know, I've got this huge extensive farm from Party that I can 
personally hold responsible for it. <laughs> <laughs> in good ways, Jim, I'm teasing. Um, but also, you know, I was sent away to boarding school and that was a really, that was just such a contrast of experience for me. A little bit like going from my cooker's house to my grandmother's house. Yeah, yeah. You know, I would be in my whānau home that, um, open up the covers, there might not be kai, and you would go to this boarding school that was, you know, five cars and there were three people in the house that could drive. You know, it was just such a contrast of way of living and it kind of so where was me, that where, where was the school it was a boarding school in Monganui. okay mm. and it gave me real it felt so and i couldn't articulate it then but i could feel and sense it in every aspect of my being and i loved my friends from there but everything felt so inequitable and i really really struggled with it as a teenager to try and make sense of that but i think that really empowered me and gave me massive insight um, I've always loved working with a whole range of different young people who present. It's such a privilege and an honour. And, you know, I, I say every, every context I've been in, I've learned amazing lessons alongside young people. But I worked in the New Zealand prison system, and that was really... Um, and I worked there purposefully because I had, had so much of my whānau go there that I wanted to have some kind of give back to people that, you know, uh, that I loved, you know, that... Um, I had some, I felt that I had something to give, so I wanted to find a way that I could do it constructively. And that was a real, really, what's the word? It was a really powerful experience as well, because once again, it really entrenched in me these inequities and these unjust things. And just, a bit of gratitude too, maybe? Like oh, massively, yep. massively. And it gave me real passion to want to do something so differently than how we've always done it, to have different outcomes, you know, and a lot of the young men that I worked with, 16 to 20 year old young men, and they were amazing, they were amazing young men, they just haven't been given the same kind of opportunities or mm. cultural educational capital that I had been given, and I easily could have been one of those people, you know, one of those young people, yeah. Me too. So easily, and I it just, um, it does give you gratitude because, you know, maybe you just, we just left a certain place at the right time or turned the right you know, the right street at the right time to not have been in that situation. Um, and then the other thing around it, the other really powerful things, was um, working in a whole range of different contexts with different people. And, you know, you can't help but be a part of people's lives and sort of walk away not feeling really enriched from that. Yeah. And that was from, you know, I've taught overseas in a little, in, you know, federal countries and I've taught in... Um, you know, from Northland to um, Porirua to, you know, some just bloody humbling experiences, eh? How did you go from, so you went from school and then did you go to uni or how yep. did, yeah? So what did you study yep. at uni? Well, actually, I really wanted to be an actress. And, you know, my, I got the really good advice, sound advice that you did at that period <laughs> of time, which is go to the qualification and then go and do it. And so I kind of, I... I sort of waffled my way through. I wasn't overly into what I was doing. It was just kind of like going with the flow. Had a damn good time at university. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and that was all, that was all a big part of it too. But it, and it wasn't until actually that I wasn't that I worked in, in the prison system that I really found my passion for education. Probably up until the end, I was kind of you know enjoying the experience, but not really driven about what I was doing there. And how did that come about? The passion for education. I think it probably came about because you just see things that could be so, so easily done differently 
to have a create this massive other outcome and you know and I would be a young teacher and hear um, other educationists who are good people you know good people but they would say some of the things that just sent that just had the most horrific um, you, know, you mean about themselves or uh, about situations you know um, things like you know it, it, was, it was just the unconscious bias it wasn't that they're bad people it was just that you when you've heard something so long or you've been you know you've believed something for so long it's hard to think outside of the square around what you're saying but they would say things along the lines of um oh if only those parents did this this and this you know then we were, and, and, and I, this was other teachers saying it is it well, educationists yeah. Oh, yeah you know as i would say um in myself i would think you know what there's not a single parent in our country or in the world who doesn't send their child off to school for the, you know, with hopes and aspirations of a better future for them. Mm-hmm. Now, we might not be able to connect with them in the way that they do that or some of their understandings or philosophical beliefs, but that's okay. They still have the same hopes and aims and aspirations for their kids that you and I do. But I didn't have that voice yep. then. I would sort of almost have to sit there silently and um, and maybe every now and then I might put something out there. But eventually I got stronger and stronger and more and more confident to be able to say, well, you know what? To the point now I say, if I ever sit down, I always say this to staff too, if you ever sit down next to someone and they start off with, the problem with those kids is you get up and you run and you just keep running because you don't have to listen to that kind of speech coming from, you know, coming from another person. Yep. You don't have to expose yourself. And don't. Run. Run from it. So talk about, I guess, your timeline from getting started out into to where you are now. What are some of the things that has changed and what are some of the things you think there's still left to change? In the education system? Yeah. Oh, well, you know... Well, if anything, does, does nothing need to be changed? I think there's pockets of some great things happening. And mm-hmm. I think that, you know, teachers, uh, educators educate because they're good people. You know, they're, they're essentially good people. But I do think that our system needs a massive shake-up and a massive overhaul. And I worry that we've been doing some things for so long that we're inadvertently disadvantaging our young people, especially for the world that they're about to embark on, because the world is going to be so dramatically different. And if we think that we can still operate by being the sources and fountain of all knowledge at the front of the classroom, you know, getting people to rote learn or to regurgitate information, man, we've missed the mark. You know, we've missed the mark of positioning our young people to be the shakers, movers, innovators, designers, thinkers, creators, entrepreneurs, social entrepreneurs, all those things that this world is just, you know, it's like the prime, prime time for them to, to be in that space. Yeah. Mm. So if we were back up a little bit, like I'm pulling things us backwards a little bit, which the listeners probably won't like, but talk about your time when you got involved with um, Party of High School yourself. What was what was that like coming home and yep. what were some things that you kind of addressed there or what motivated you to go in there and, and in my own words, shake things up? Yep, so I had actually been the principal at Tamatea High School over in the Hawke's Bay for, five, for close to five years. Okay. And I was sort of, by the time, you know, and I was at the time I was one of the youngest principals in a general stream secondary school in the country when I started at Tamatea and I was one of only six Māori females in the general stream education, secondary school, you know, um, secondary school setting. And so I it felt like I'd done my dash. I really wanted a bit of a change up. Yep. And I moved home to party to be by my father and just to kick back and kind of relax. And then the ministry contacted me about party area school because it was in a bit of strife. Then it was under statutory management. You know, it had 
some pretty, you know, it had some big things that needed to be shaken up. And they asked me if I would do it, and I said no, no. And then the third time, they said, well, we're going to close the secondary part of the school, and that's the biggest employer of that town. Yeah. So that was a pretty strong motivator. And I, and I guess it kind of, you know, it, what it meant to me was, you know, put your money where your mouth is or shut up. You can't sit there. And it wasn't that I didn't want to. It was yeah, yeah. that I was trying to take time to have a little bit of a breather. And I'm not the kind of person who does things by half, so I'm going to do it. I'm going to make sure that we do it really well. And was there any cast in that moment when you thought about the school closing down and things like that? Was there any um, heartstrings pulled in reflection when you think of when the freezing works closed? Um, I definitely was worried about the community and those kids, and I think that they just, you know, it's really easy to say let's put on the bus and we'll just drive them all out of town. But you know, some of them, some of our young, it's community is really critical. Mm. You know, and being the largest employer in the community is also another really important part of it. And those kids are amazing, and they deserve more than just being shipped off to another community, another town, and you know, another school. Um, in comes the, back to that he cast off that you were absolutely about, yeah and it was it was really cool and you know and it's really even though I was the principal I don't, I'm not a leader that well, I don't even like the word leader actually but I'm not a principal that likes to you'll very rarely see me in the front I mm. like I position myself purposely at the back and there you can help grow capacity and build far more amazing leaders than what I could ever imagine to be yep and I, I like that space that's probably where I'm most most comfortably seated. In my own experience, it's like the people that are up the front that lead, um, it's, it's more of a guidance thing, which we need. Um, but then people who lead from the back, it's almost like an empowerment. They want to empower the people around them. Would you say that's a fair assessment of how you look at it? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I have to, I really, I don't, look, I don't even like calling myself a principal. I will very, very <laughs> introduce myself. Because it is... It has stigma and connotations, and I don't like to be thought of. Right what, are, now. what are some of them that you don't like to be chuffed, chucked in it with? It makes people feel uncomfortable. Like when you sometimes when you say, you know, someone introduces me, this is Nicola Prince, and I want to slap because <laughs> immediately they almost they sit up straight and they, you know, and you they feel disconnected from you. And hmm. I think the most important thing is it doesn't matter what my job or what those titles are. I am who I am, and I can often be the scruffiest dressed person on the staff and the most, you know, and I prefer to feel comfortable in that space and who I am, which is, you know, down to earth. And I don't like any titles or any suggestions around what those things may or may not mean because that's not how I see myself or how I like to operate. It's probably you know, a societal thing, eh? Like, we're quite used to meeting people and the first question you ask them is, oh, what do you do? And so I guess people attach, uh, oh man, I don't want to be so cynical as to say they almost treat you according to your job, but I think that probably has been what's happened in the past. I think we're segueing out of that now. What, do you, do, what are your thoughts around yeah, that? Yeah, I always, in fact, that's a really good point, because I always, no matter what form I go to, I always say, you know, I'm a mother of two, um, you know, I've got a, um, got a partner, partner of one. Yeah, yeah. You know, just, and I, I'm glad I, you clarify that. <laughs> open to, open to It's <laughs> my joke, but you know, and I've tried to avoid what it is that I do because what is that, you know, and what even as a principal, you know, I'm passionate about kids and I'm passionate about education, mm. but that doesn't mean that I do one thing. That's one big thing I've always noticed, like with um, being Maori is when you, when you meet people, when you meet a lot of non-Māori, it's, oh, so what do you do? But, um, when you meet a lot of Māori, it's where you're from. 
I find that's that's pretty powerful, you know. Like yeah. it's, uh, but then that can be bad too, because sometimes where you're from is almost that measuring stick of what do you do. It's kind of I guess the the same sort of measure of just a different unit being yeah. used. If that yeah. makes sense, because yeah. you know, like I'm sure you would have encountered Maori before. I know I definitely have. Well, not even Maori, but just people in general. Like where you're from, you tell them they go, oh, they pull a bit of a face, like as if they would if you said you were a job that they might not think too highly of either. That's so yep. it probably works both ways. Eh? Yeah. So from Partia, what were some of the things that you saw um, when you arrived, or how, how was it when you turned up to Partia School, and what were what was going on? Yeah. <laughs> She's pulling the funniest face right I now. Am. <laughs> you know, I'll tell you one thing that happened is when I walked into those buildings, and and there were. You know, there was gang insignia that had been burnt into the ceiling and just left there. And I just thought, how on earth could we have this? And this is the representation of what we think of these young people. Mm. You know, it was a terrible. You mean terrible not caring enough to remove it or? That they had to walk through there and under that every day to get onto their learning space, you know? Yeah. And I just thought that was an appalling message of how valued. They were in our environment and in our yeah. space. They deserve to have like the most, you know, five star red carpet rolled out to them when they come into that school every day. Any kid, anywhere. Yeah. Um, and they, you know, and we went on after three years. You know, those kids won the UNESCO um, Education Global Citizenship National Award. They went on to Silicon Valley and presented, you know, apps to. Um, you know, ma- major innovators and a whole range of things like that. They did some amazing inquiry work that was picked up by TPNC around um, seabed mining. They did some amazing work on the quest for the dress where they got, you know, tens of thousands of ball dresses donated that they turned into a roving ball, gout, uh, ball, uh, roving ball boutique. Amazing things. Now, they're the same set of kids that, that had been... You know, pre- subjected to that. that that's not just subjected to that, that had, that had been the expectation of how they were going to perform. Mm. Now, so they're the same set of kids, same set of kids. Just three years later, looking through things with a different lens and a slight adjustment of the change of mindset from those that sat around them yep. in the educational realm, um, they were able to you know, really achieve what they were always capable of achieving. They just needed a different way of being able to be guided through that, that opportunity to shine, that's what they need. So what were some of those things then that you implemented to, to achieve that potential? Because I imagine there would have, like you've, you've talked about um, the, the red carpet five-star treatment, which is hard to do when you don't have the red carpet five-star budget. Mm. So what were some of the things that you, you were able to implement to help encourage that change? Well, not, obviously not just you, you had a, you had a big crew with you. I'm not, I know you're not one to yeah. want to take the credit for everything, but yeah. I'm just when I say you, I mean you and your the support team. network, yep. yeah, you're, you're the team. Yeah, do, do you know what? It was really, really weird. If you had to really peel back, you know, so we did the timetable construct differently and we did the curriculum completely differently and we brought in you know, some amazing practices for internationally, but it was really, really, really simple. You just had to know who those kids were, know what their hopes and dreams and aspirations were, and then you had to work your butt off to make it happen. And it didn't matter if they wanted to be a top coder at Silicon Valley, or they wanted to be a movie star um, on a New Zealand television programme. That was our job to bring it together so that their hopes and dreams and aspirations could be brought to reality. It was that simple. 
So let's use me as an example. I, I'm a student, mm-hmm. and my ambition is to be an all black. Yep. What are some of the things that you put in place to, to help someone like me with that goal? I guess it's probably, uh, you know, really getting down to it is what does that look like and what does that feel like for you, and then how can we collectively and collaboratively make that happen? And I might not have this, I most definitely for that ambition don't have that set of skills, mm. but I am confident that between us, I mean, asking for others to help us, we can pull in the support that you need to make that happen. Now, the only real thing that I needed to do for us, other than create that relationship and then widen our circle of sea of influence, was to change our mindset that anything was possible and be brave and be bold and make it happen. So you, it's you're, that simple. It you, really is that simple. So you're getting through a lot of kids, obviously, that don't think too much of themselves, so that's fair to say? or. I think sometimes our, you know, I, I'm hoping that they think a lot of themselves, but we just have to bring that to fruition. You know, so I think if you really dig beneath the surface, there's already a pretty nice level of, of confidence about yeah. actually who we are. We just sometimes have to dig a little bit deeper and then bring it to the surface and then sit some other things around it to make it happen. My personal opinion is, like, kids are naturally optimistic and then that kind of gets taken away by the noise of the world. What are your thoughts? Do you Absolutely. think that's fair to say? Yeah, yep. and then sometimes, you know, some of the, that machine, I often used to think, oh my gosh, you know, you've got these amazing kids that start school at five and they're like little lambs, you know, like those little lambs that bounce into the paddock. Yeah, yeah. You know, they're like full of Enthusiastic. And, and they come out the other end and they're like these big sheep that just want to follow the other sheep and they you know, chomp on the grass all day and they've lost that spring. Yeah. And I worry, you know, you know, and I spend a lot of time really processing how is it that you keep that spring and those sheep and those babies that come into school so that when they come out of the education system, they've still got that bounce and energy and zest for life and belief in what they can do, mm. rather than these, you know, these um, these animals that you've just sort of managed to process and manufacture that they all think the same way operate and they've lost their and energy. I don't think, I don't, you know, I'm probably an optimistic at the, at the best of times, but I, it's actually not that hard to do either. So what are some of the things that we need to be mindful of? Because I know it's not just teachers and people at school that can help by keeping that enthusiasm and that, and that flame of light, so to speak. Like everyone in the community can help maintain that spring in the step of the young lamb. So what are some of the things that we can all help with? I think one of the biggest things from my perspective um, is that keeping our young people connected and in whatever shape or form that might be. Because, you know, this is really challenging times. And when you look at sort of stats around mental health and mental wellbeing, and you look at the um, structures that used to be there around communities set up and network, it can be a really isolating world. Mm. Um, and I think that as communities, we actually have the solutions to that too. And it is about, it does, it's not one shape or size or form for everybody, but we all have something to be able to contribute to make that happen. And I think if we keep connected and we strengthen and inspire each other, then we've kind of probably hit the nail on the head. So give me some examples of, of how we can do that. What are some what are some ways that we can maintain a connection with, with these youth or help them out? Like even if you want to use me for an example, like what are some ways that I can help out with Yeah, I'm gonna go back to my principal thing here. <laughs> yeah. Right, so here's one thing that we do is you know like teachers we've got a certain set of knowledge and skills and that's great. But there's lots of things that we don't have. So we've set up an expert um, partnership platform and that basically means if you've got a set of skills that pos- quite possibly out of 110 staff we don't have 
you sign up for this online platform and then we would connect you with a young person who had similar aspirations or goals that we couldn't meet to be mentored both on and offline with whatever shape or form or capacity you could have. And so we've sort of been, I've got some amazing social entrepreneurs signed up there, we've got some amazing coders, uh, but we also just have some people, you know, so we have uh, a group of old folks that come in and do knitting, um, knitting club with our young people one hour a week. So it's about, you know, there's never underestimate what the skill or what you have to offer and how that can go a really long way to mentor and support some young person in whatever space they're in at that time. So that's something I could go to, like, now straight away. I could log online and I can put forth a, a skill. So we, we send it out, you know, basically when we have we meet people because we, we have to have some kind of vetting process, but we yep. send it out. And that's been a really, you know, so we've got some young people who are doing um, 4D gaming um modelling, building, you know, through their, um, on their computers in their bedroom. No, I don't have that set of skills. Yeah, yeah. Neither does my I don't know that. <laughs> but it's amazing who does. Mm. And it's not like you have to give up a lot of time. It could just be an online connection around guiding or mentoring, that, that kind of energy. But that's, that's connection in a really different way than what we've ever known it, but it's so critical. And it mentors and supports young people and whatever their aims and aspirations are, whether it's learning how to knit something for, you know, I think they're knitting blankets for um, premature babies at the moment, yep. or whether they're looking at 4D gamification creations. So it feels like there was once upon a time, because it feels like we're kind of going back to what school used to be, like if we're, you know, following your philosophies and and the things you guys are putting in place with your team. Like it feels like, from my understanding anyway, from back in the day, school was a community-based platform you know people of the community would come forth with skills that they had and they would pass that on to the youth in the community then somewhere along the way it seems like these barriers or these walls got built up to exclude the community and it was only teachers that were going to be helping them out no one else and then now we're trying to bring those walls back down and have the school back as one with the community is that kind of what's happening definitely that's a part of it but i would say you know when when you're trying to create a student-centered student voice driven kind of program um, it's a little bit like, what do you call that, chicken, far, you know, like farm, with their cage, yeah, cage, yeah. cage chicken farm learning as opposed to free range kind of learning. And I guess that's the other kind of element that comes into it. So there's that part being connected community, absolutely, in the community in all its contexts and flavours, but the other part of it, in giving as well as receiving, but the other part of it is around the learning programmes and designs so that they're not about the teacher and about the teacher being the fountain of all knowledge and programs that fit around how they see the world operating best for them. So could those walls have potentially gone up due to ego? Like a lot of a lot of teachers or schools trying to make themselves the be all and end all when it comes to what should be going into our kids? I think I think I mean education comes from a really unusual space around what you know it comes from uh, you know religion actually and the old form of um, being able to keep your knowledge safe. So you had all sorts of guards and things up and you know, that's going right back to, you know, the first, you know, a traditional form of education. Yeah. Um, and so I think... I never knew that, but it makes so much sense that you say that. Like, I had no clue that that's so where always, education came from. Yes, but. So it's always had barriers. Uh, so I'm talking about, you know, Westminster version of education, because of yep. course there's Indigenous version of education that's far more inclusive and holistic and about... Um, transmission of knowledge and a whole range of other things it's quite quite a different model too but so it's always been about this person you know or certain group of people who've been able to hold all the knowledge and feed out what they want 
that yeah. doesn't disempower them, that gives just enough people enough to be able to create what they saw as being needed at that time and place. Yeah. Mm. So then um, after Partier, you'd was sponsored straight after that or was there yep. some yep. something else in between or yep no so I did I had a contract for three years at the party which was you know awesome um and Spotswood College actually was the first high school that I started at and so I um both both my kids came back into school because I was pregnant both times with my girls there oh, yeah. that's when you had five weeks maternity leave and so both my girls came back into me uh, into school with me from five weeks of age full time and so that was a really unusual situation that a school would allow that to happen and these babies going back in full time five weeks away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you, you mean you physically took them to school with you? Yeah, yeah. Crazy. Yeah, so they came back to, with me full time. Is, yeah. And so that was, you know, that was not a common um, practice or an opportunity that was given, but for my household and my family at that time, we wouldn't have been able to survive, you know. We would have five weeks income stopped and then, you know, we were... Then what? Yeah, that's right. And Wayne was um, at... He was studying at the time, so it would have been really tough. And we, so I'm always really grateful that that community not only gave me that opportunity, but they effectively helped me to raise my kids. You know. Yeah. Yeah. So it was a chance to kind of go give back, but also obviously you do. It wasn't just you weren't there just for charity. You were there to make an impact, of course. But 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 a big appeal of that was a chance to give back to them too. Yeah, I always you know I knew that there had to be a challenge that was about taking a high performing traditional setting and what would that look like as a high performing, um, as a high performing future focused school, and so it it made sense that I was going to do it at a school that I really loved. Yeah. Yeah. And speaking of Wayne, since we've brought him up, how did you guys meet? Uh, he was working with my uh, brother-in-law actually when we were teenagers. Yeah. 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 And then, and then, how long have you guys been together for now? Uh, yeah, we'd be over thirty years. Yeah. Far out. So we're only teen- yeah teenagers. Yeah. So <laughs> things that go around with being out and dumb, but yeah. Yeah. Oh, sweet. Well, it's funny because I, I forget that he was one my teacher at, at some stage and we, we forget about it until we get into like when we were at Johnson Corner that night and we were just yeah chatting away about stuff and then that actually came forward. So speaking of Johnson Corner, how did that relationship come to be? Yeah, so, you know, I'm, I'm huge on future focus and innovation and making sure that we give our young people these amazing opportunities rather than just textbook learning and you know, a bygone kind of era. And so the work that Adnan does is almost philosophically, exactly in the same synergy of what I believe, you know, has been a really good space and place for our young people. So it was a natural a natural relationship. We started talking around what could a, what a, could a good partnership look like, where, you know, we were using that innovation space and using our young people um, that have already been trained to think like that and marrying them together. Mm. Cool. And so how does that relationship work these days? What what happens? So we've got um an in, we've got interns that run out of Johnson's Corner and the difference with an intern compared to a work experience, a work experience, you know, sometimes that might work that you are at the bottom of the um, you know, of the picking order and you're sweeping here in the hairdressers so or whatever it might be. Yeah, yeah. And intern effectively means that you are given projects and modules and you are expected to perform just like any other employee would in that place. And you're guided and supported and mentored for it, but you are effectively, um, you know, having to run that company and run that. So my daughter, um, who actually is one of the interns at Johnson's Corner, uh, 17 years of age, she looked after the place for a, a week. Why Adnan and that went away. So seventeen years old and having to, 
open up the business, you know, get the communication happening, and it was an amazing experience. And we don't often give it to young people to the way that they should. We yeah. give them that chance to shine because we've got all these funny things that you have to, you know, seniority and list authority and work your way up. But actually, we're underestimating their capacity and the innovation and the skill set that they bring to things. So, yeah, so Adnan and Johnson's Corner is amazing at being able to help us to grow and nurture that. Sweet. Mm. So with, it sounds like you, like what, you can't really do what you do. Well, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe you can. But it seems to me you can't really do what you do without having a bit of a mission statement or a long-term goal or kind of um, a, a, a final vision to move the jigsaw puzzles into. What is the ultimate plan with what you're trying to achieve with the education system? Yeah, probably ultimately it is that we position ourselves as an education system and as a country to make sure that we are creating, or, you know, that we are giving our young people every opportunity that they need to be the innovators, the designers, the shakers, the movers, the braves, the bolds, the social entrepreneurs of what their future world is going to look like rather than just someone's doing it for you. And I think that our country is so perfectly positioned, the size of us mm. and everything else around our, um, our New Zealand curriculum, which is an amazing document, so perfectly positioned to do that. But we seem to be really, really backwards and coming forwards around those opportunities. Yeah. I like that, really backwards in terms of coming forwards. So I'm going to remember that one. So what are, like, what are some of the barriers that exist to, to making this a reality now? I think the only barriers truly that exist are the ones that we create and allow to be there because there aren't any. We've got the, as like I said, the documentation that sits around us, education as a country, is phenomenal. It's, it's internationally recognised in New Zealand curriculum. Um, we don't have any, we don't have to have any barriers around these timetable perceived constraints of one hour long solo operating subjects for academic um, achievements because actually that's not real either and there's lots of evidence that suggests and shows that. Uh, And when you look at some of the really forward-thinking countries that have, you know, maybe five years ago, we we had almost no credibility in this space internationally, like Hong Kong would now be one of the most most internationally recognised education systems and it's because they've done what I think we should be challenged more to do which is embrace it and move with it and be flexible and agile and responsive to the needs of our young people but in a way that supports each you know supports educationists as well yeah so um, I, I actually I'm glad you brought that up because I would have forgotten about it mm. the the timetable yeah um, what 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 are you doing different with the timetable it's massively different yeah 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 hard to, um, pull in, but Let's try. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so basically, you know, we have literacy and numeracy across the school, and that's in all of its context. So not just traditional English and maths, which we have, mm-hmm. but also you could do a whole range of um, algebra um, and other numeracy focuses through science, or you could do it through um, through an innovation space, or you could do it through. Um, hospitality. So it's through whatever the kids' passion and area might be, rather than what you and I probably did. Mm. Sat in a math class, and you sat in math class one, two, or three. Same yeah. as literacy. And then we have three-hour STEAMs, and the STEAMs are a combination of science, technology, engineering, arts, and math. And our philosophy around that is basically, if you 
So, you, so it's a three-hour section where those are all together in one one class? Is so that right? It's integrated and the classes have been three hours, up to three hours long. Okay. And we do that because then you can mobilise the kids to go to Johnson's Corner so that they're learning about um, entrepreneurial practice but in a real contextual learning environment rather than in a classroom space. Yeah. And in an hour-long space, you can't do that. Yeah, you can't travel, like, logistically for travel. Out. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it opens up, it busts down the bricks and mortar of what education in schools. Um, but, you know, th- and this is my philosophy around STEAM, which is a pretty big sort of international kind of recognised way of learning now. If you wanted a top doctor five years ago, ten years ago, they would study science alone, maybe. Mm-hmm. But if you want a top doctor that's got a future focus in the next five years when these kids are going to graduate they shouldn't just be learning science and silo they need to be learning technology that goes hand in hand with that because we already have artificial intelligence that's performing intricate surgery as we speak you know internationally today yeah and so we're disadvantaging our kids if we give them the siloed approach to what is already an integrated world around science technology engineering arts and maths combined so they need to not only be have the top scientific knowledge but they also need to have the technology or technological innovation space around it so they can morph both together and be top innovative designing thinking doctors and and the medical profession that it's going to look like in the future and the three hour slots means they don't have to do it in a science lab at school they may well go down to Fonterra which has got some of the most amazing science labs in in our region and so it gives us that you know, capacity to shift and morph to the spaces that you know that are part of our community that we just don't access as schools. It almost sounds like you've taken your your final philosophy of this Ahikan community from a tiny space in Patia, and you've just grown it slowly because effectively. It's what you're doing with the school. Like you talk about going out to Fonterra, or that's another partnership or community person you're having involved. Is that? By plan, or is that? I, I definitely, you know, once upon a time there used to be a big push that you would send your kids off, or they would have to go overseas to be the best thing that they could be. Mm. But I definitely believe that um, in this time and age, that doesn't have to happen. And so, we may well want our young people to go off, but we also want to retain some of our best, um, our best young people in our communities as well. And I think that we have to put some emphasis on that to do that. Otherwise, you know, what will Taranaki or what will provincial New Zealand look like in 10 years' time? And there's already country, you know, I have a friend that works and uh, runs their business on a beach in Bali. Mm. Now, they're already in that space doing it and living the life, too, I have yeah, to yeah. say. But I've got a bunch of nomad friends that are similar. They, they, they operate in Bali but some of them in Europe and stuff like that and yeah, you see them in like far out and I was, I'm, I'm actually getting a few of them for the podcast to chat to them about how they do it and, and why it's kind of the way forward but so it's funny that you bring that up too yeah and, and you know and that's <coughs> awesome because we come from a beautiful you know and I'm really staunchly Taranaki proud from a beautiful uh, region and, yep. and amazing communities that sit around us so you I definitely, you know, fundamentally believe that we, while we want our young people to experience a whole range of things, we don't have to be pushing them overseas to be the best of what they can be in this time and age, I think. Um, I love that saying, you know, um, inwards standing but outwards facing. So, you know, so that you're you're wrapped in by looking into your community, but you will always be looking out extremely at the other things that you need to be aware of. Cool. And you've talked a lot about 
the future. You've mentioned future quite a bit, which obviously makes sense because you're working in creating futures or helping empowering people to create their own futures what are some things because I, I know Adnan likes to to, to look forward and, and dream up sort of things but what are some things that one you can see happening like you definitely kind of know that's going to be changing in the future whether you want to talk about technology because you'll be privy to a lot of conversations and things that I wouldn't and the listeners wouldn't as well you know like I'm sure like Fonterra is probably working on something crazy that we have know about just an example um, so what are some things that you see that are going to be changing not only in the education sector but Globally, what are some what are some interesting things that excite you that you can see coming over the horizon that you've learned about? Well, if I had to pick my one biggest thing, and it is, I, I believe that only ever takes one person to make a big difference. And so, if I had to pick what my personal favourite is, it is around social entrepreneurship. And you know, once upon a time, you wanted entrepreneurs that could make big bucks, and it was all about them and how much they could amass and gain for their own self profit. But a social entrepreneur is about being able to bring in a whole range of resourcing, but using that resourcing to be able to empower others. And I really love that idea and that it only ever takes one to really make a big difference. And so if I had to pick of all the things around artificial intelligence and yeah. um, all the stuff around uh, technology and you know recoding and uncoding and all the rest of it, it would be to be able to have amazing social entrepreneurs that are able to contribute to you know, global issues that we're all, you know, that we're all connected to and a part of, we just don't always choose to address them or be part of that response. Sweet. Mm. So speaking of social entrepreneurship or social issues or, or making the world a better place, the only one question I, I make sure to ask um, while I'm doing these podcasts is there's someone who's listening right now who's feeling a bit down in the dumps, mm. things might not be going too well. What would your advice be to them at this time? So they're not feeling particularly well at this moment. Mm. I'd say, you know what, take one step at a time, one foot in front of in front of the other. That's all it takes. Just keep just keep moving, one step in front of the other at all times. Sweet, nice and easy. Mm. Is there anything else like you want to say before I let you head off? Is there any kind of final thought you want to leave the listeners or challenge them perhaps to to something? I, I will just say, and I have to say that I don't talk that much. This is probably the longest <laughs> I've ever talked in one go. It was funny, you were actually really oh, yeah. paranoid about being boring and not being, it's, it's been an hour nearly, so. Oh my gosh, <laughs> far out. No wonder my, that is just not my norm at all. And I always say this is be brave and be bold and, you know, work together to build a better future for tomorrow because we have that power in us. We just need to bring it out and, you know, synergize it all together. That there was episode 16 of the Best Side Podcast with Nikola Ngairewa. So you can see what I mean now when we're talking about education and the way that uh, we need to get back to some core values and some core principles and having those experts in their field. So it could be you. You could be the person that they are looking for with whatever you're passionate about, whatever you're talking about, whatever you're doing, whether it's mahi or on the side or otherwise, or something you're doing as a whānau. If you're passionate about it, then it is definitely something that you need to be passing on, empowering those around you to know about as well, which is something that the education sector is looking like it is doing. Instead of sending people off to courses and things like that, they want to hear from those people 
that are already having fun or already loving, already passionate about whatever it is they are doing and coming and sharing it with the kids because they might have a passion about it as well. We're going to be catching up with Nicola for sure in the near future, even some of her students to explore some of the cool things that they are up to. So make sure you keep an eye out for that. Make sure you're giving us those reviews. Spotify, iTunes, Apple, Instagram, Facebook, wherever you find a space to leave a review, please do so. It's the Best Side Podcast, and we'll see you next time.